We're doing a series on the book of John. We're in John chapter 12. We're gonna talk about the glory of God. We're gonna talk about this. This is an important thing for us to work through and think about. So I want to first read John chapter 12, verses 27 to 36. It's not on the screens. You just follow along. If you've got your Bible, you can put it on your phone, or you can just listen. It's a good thing to do too. Now, my soul is troubled. Jesus is talking. My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd was there and heard it and said it had thundered. Some said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this earth. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to, me, to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd said, we have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Lifted up, they totally understood that meant die. So they, they couldn't understand, who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. When I was in graduate school, uh, I was at a seminary, and one of the things we would do occasionally, they would do, is they would have an open mic for testimonies. Uh, it's an interesting thing. It's a dangerous thing. There was a seminary there. There was also a college. It's a very dangerous thing to give young people a microphone when they really aren't sure what they're going to say ahead of time. And sometimes people would get up and say funny stuff or crazy stuff or what, and sometimes very poignant stuff. But I remember one time a guy got up there and uh, he said this, he was saying that we get so caught up in our theology, these abstract theologies, he said that, that we miss showing the love of God to people. We don't do the practical stuff because our heads are all filled with all this theology. And okay, as a student there, I was just like, snap, shots fired, man. This guy has just said something directly to the theology department of this graduate school. And so we all knew, you know, you ever, we all knew in our next class, this is going to be a topic of discussion. And sure enough, in my next class, there was a great professor. I loved him to death. He was just a kind, sweet man who sometimes he could be strong and yet he was, you know, he just was a perfect embodiment of what a professor should be. And, and what happened was a student asked about it. And you know, sometimes people can ask a question knowing, sounds so innocent, but knowing that the answer to that question is going to generate all kinds of controversy. So they said, Professor, you know, that guy who was saying, you know, we get so worried about abstract theology, and yet this is a theology class. I mean, it seems like he was almost criticizing you, but I don't know, you know, what, what do you think? And we're all like, oh, this is going to be great. We're not going to do any work today. We're just going to listen and uh, he, said, he said, it's true that if we study theology without working it out in our daily lives, it can become abstract and unrelated to the needs of people. But, he said, theology is the foundation that enables us to meet the needs of people, especially spiritual needs, and not to veer off course and become condemning pharisaical religionists. But if we try to serve the needs of the people without the foundation, our motives become mixed and suddenly we become the center and not others. This is what happened to the religious leaders in Jesus' day. 
the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they had become the center. In some ways, their theology was not off. Some of their application was, but their theology was not necessarily off. But what had happened is they had become the center. We just talked about this a week or two ago when they said, we have to do something about Jesus or we will lose our place. We will lose our place in the temple. That's where the money's at. And we will lose our place in this nation. The nation, that's leadership. We will lose our place. See, what had happened? They had become the center. And that's what can happen. But theology can become the foundation that keeps us from going there. Jesus is going to teach some powerful theological issues in this text. And there are things that we're going to need to grapple with. The first thing I want you to see is I want you to see the humanity of Jesus and how, I talked about this as the the glory of God, how that glorifies God, the humanity of Jesus. He says now, verse 27, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. See, this touches on a core belief that we have as followers of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is God and he is man. Now, this has been a controversy for a long time. There's been an argument between people who take a more conservative position, say Jesus is fully God and fully man, and people who say, no, you know, they emphasize more the man, and, and uh, they, they tend to uh, not emphasize the aspect of him being God. But it's very interesting, you know, um, reading some very few historians and theologians, just of every stripe, very few, they all agree that there really was a man named Jesus who lived and taught in Israel in the first century and was probably killed for what he taught. They agree with the man part. It's It's the God part that's the rub for them. And because of this, you know how so many times when there's, when there's some sort of a problem and the, the pendulum tends to swing to the opposite side as people react to that problem? Because of this, what has happened over the years is that oftentimes uh, uh, Christians, especially people who write books and stuff like that, they've emphasized, emphasized, emphasized the Godhood, the aspect of Jesus, that he is God. And they've neglected at times or minimized the fact that he's a human being, almost as if, almost as if um, to acknowledge the humanity of Jesus somehow took away from his divinity. But here, we are seeing Jesus. We see the way Jesus reacts. This is very human. When it says, my soul is troubled, literally, my soul, my psyche has been thrown into confusion. It's the idea, it carries the weight of this idea of great fear, of anxiety, of being Think about this for Jesus, confused. And he's saying, this is how I feel. He's being a human being right now. He's showing us the absolute humanity that we have in Jesus Christ. We cannot understand why Jesus is so troubled unless we understand the biblical reason for his death. He is troubled. And later, we're going to see in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're going to see this even amplified. But he's troubled. He's looking for an alternative, in a sense, a way out. What is it? You know, think about this. What is it that made the mightiest being in the universe afraid? What could be so terrible? And I think what it is, 
He's beginning to feel the weight of our sins and the consequences of dying for us. Because what is the consequence of dying for us? On the cross, the Father is going to turn away. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You think about it, forsaken is an incredibly strong word. The Father turned away. Forsaken means to abandon or to leave behind. You know, there's no greater agony than to have love ripped away from you. A child dies. A spouse is taken away through death or divorce or something horrible. We, we can't understand this whole situation totally, but there is at a point on the cross where Jesus is abandoned, in a sense, left alone. No love, no father, no hope. He gets what we deserve, utter inconsequentiality, to be inconsequential, to be nothing. The ultimate punishment for, for sin, God, what does God say? He says, depart from me, all right? Inco- you become inconsequential, abandoned. This is a taste of what happened to Jesus, except it happened to him on a cosmic scale, not just on a human scale. And I know sometimes people say, you can see this all the time, people say, is this really necessary? Is my sin really that bad? Is my rebellion, my flaws, are they really that bad? The forsakenness of Jesus, this is so important for us. The forsakenness of Jesus shows how holy God is and how much he hates sin. Jesus knew what he was facing. And it was beginning to affect him as a human being. He felt fear. He felt confusion. And, you know, it's, it's weird, you know, even sitting here as a pastor and, and, and going through seminary and all this training, I, it, it makes me uneasy to even say those things because it seems like somehow, like I was saying before, we almost get this idea that lessens his, 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 his godness, but it doesn't. What it does is it makes us go, he's like me. He's like me. There have been times in my life where I felt forsaken. There have been times in my life where I felt fear, confusion, abandonment. He knows how it feels. So we have that humanity of Jesus. Next thing is we have the purpose of Jesus. He says, for this very reason, I've come to this day. What is that reason? Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. He says, that's why I'm here. I'm here to glorify God. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. He goes, I didn't need to hear that. I knew what the answer was. He says, I'm here to glorify you. My personal desires are secondary. We, we say that here, right? We say, we say on Sunday mornings, this is all about God, not about us. And that's what, this from this. This is where that idea is coming from. Jesus says, God, this is all about you, all about your glory. And now we, I think we need to talk about this, though. Glory is an important thought. Take, let's take a moment about glory and, and to glorify. What, what's going on there? Because our culture, our world, but our culture suffers from a lack of glory. 
So it becomes extremely practical. You know, for those people who worry, is theology practical? It gets right down where we live and walk and breathe and eat. That kind of practical. The Old Testament word for glory is kabod. <clears throat> Excuse me. It has this idea of weight. It has this idea of heaviness. Something that is substantial. Something that is significant. That's what that, that word means. I'll give you an illustration of this. Um, last summer... My, my family, we all went to the beach, and uh, I was sitting. My grandson, Caleb, he loves to go and sit right at the edge of the water where the waves kind of roll in. He's only seven, and he's a skinny little toothpick. And so we would go, and I would sit. He says, Pops, will you sit with me? This is so fun. So I sat in the water with him, you know, and a wave rolls in. You know how this little kid, a wave rolls in, and he's sitting there, and boof, it hits him, and he laughs. He says, this is so fun. And I'm going, you know, boof, okay, you know. And he said, Pops. How come you don't get knocked over by the waves? There's a thoughtful thought, right? And I said, it's because I'm more substantial than you are. I have more glory than you do. So for our culture, we have to think, what are our deep values? Cultures struggle with this. Our culture is too. What are the things that really matter? <clears throat> what are the things that will stand and not get bowled over during the flow of time? What lasts? What are we supposed to stand for? What are we supposed to work for? What are we supposed to sacrifice for? What is weightier than our own personal comfort? And our culture says, you don't need God to figure this out. Our culture says, we value things like, and everyone kind of agrees on this, human dignity honesty, the right of people to live in peace, and on and on and on. We have values. But we're finding it harder and harder, and you notice this happens, this is the way cultures develop, harder and harder to agree on what's really important. How do we explain to someone through human reason alone that human dignity is so weighty that you should be willing to sacrifice your own personal comfort for that idea, human dignity. You should be willing to sacrifice your own personal comfort for the dignity of another human being. How do you explain to someone that? I mean, you can say it, but if they say why, well, here's the problem. If you look to God, God says it's because there are eternal consequences in how you treat another person who's made in the image of God. So yes, human dignity is so weighty, you should be willing to sacrifice your own personal comfort. But if we say we don't need God, and it's just our consensus as a society that gives the concept of human dignity weight, now we have a problem. You see, who do we appeal to? Because if there's nothing other than the here and now, if all history will be incredibly tiny compared to the eons of nothingness that was before and will be after humanity as we go along, then everything is inconsequential. Let me give you some examples. First of all, Dostoevsky wrote, without God, everything is permitted. He understood. He was looking at that as a person who was a believer in Jesus Christ. And he says, I, I begin to understand, if there's no God, then everything is permitted. Nietzsche said that there's no truth. Therefore, everything is permitted. Now, here's a little sidelight. This is totally free. If you play Assassin's Creed on Xbox or anything, right? If you play Assassin's Creed, 
There is, in, their sta- in, in the, the assassin's statement of, of their creed, this statement, there is no truth. Everything is permitted. That's because there was actually a society of assassins around the 11th century who stated that. So Nietzsche just picks up on it and takes that. There you go. That's free. Just look for it next time you play Assassin's Creed. All right. I don't even know why I brought that up. You could live a life of violence or you could live a life of kindness. It doesn't make a difference. You know, you could compare two lives. Maybe you have this woman and, 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 and she's led this life of lying. Lying and manipulation just to get whatever she wants her whole life. And then you have another woman. She's led a life of honesty and integrity, sometimes to her own hurt. These two people living at the same time in the same world, in the same culture. A thousand years from now, who cares about either one? Who cares? See, this is the point. If there is no God, then there is no glory. So glory is not an abstract theological idea. Our culture's in crisis because there's some things there is no way to decide apart from God. We can't come to a consensus. We're seeing that played out in front of us. But also, we're in a crisis, a psychological crisis. We yearn for glory. We want to matter. We want to count for something. This is how we're made. It's in us. And this causes deep anxiety in our lives. It, it gets worse as you get older. You start thinking, what am I doing? Is it of any consequence? What have I done? Does it matter? Will anyone remember me? Do I matter to anyone? And will I in the future matter to anyone? And a thousand years from now, will it matter how I've lived on this earth? From a purely humanistic standpoint, no, it won't matter. But from a biblical standpoint, it matters incredibly. It matters incredibly. I know I've said this, and I always get choked up when I say it, but there's going to be a point a thousand years from now, 10,000 years. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to be in heaven, and a Navajo person is going to walk up to you and say, thank you. Thank you. You prayed for that ministry. You supported that ministry. I'm here because of people like you. You see, that's something, and maybe, maybe, and this, I'm not to pressure you, maybe you gave, and it was a little difficult to give. You're like, I'm not sure if I have enough, and you gave anyways. Then what happened? You sacrificed part of your own personal comfort, and a 1,000 years from now, 10,000 years from now, it will matter. It will matter, and it will be You'll see it. You see, this is the difference that being a follower of Jesus Christ makes in our culture. Because what am I doing? Is it of any consequence? What have I done? Does it matter? Will anyone remember me? Do I matter to anyone? These are glory questions. That's what we're talking about here. And we're desperately afraid of being inconsequential. The Bible tells us every human being needs glory. Glory is the answer to our cultural issues. Glory is answer, the answer to our psychological issues, our personal issues. Without God, we're weightless. And the waves just bowl us over like clockwork. And we know deep inside, even if we deny it at the same time, we know deep inside this is true. Our hearts tell us this is true. 
I'm made for something bigger. I'm made to make it to last. I'm made for glory. Last week, I was working in my house doing some painting. I was listening to one of my favorite theologians, um, Beyonce, and, and uh, I just... Oh, well, you pick yours, I'll pick mine, right? Yeah, I'm in the Bay Hive. That's right. I'm a honeybee, not a wasp, though. She has a song, Pretty Hurts. Pretty Hurts, right? Oh, why did I do that? <laughs> right now, that sound you hear is televisions being clicked off all over. <laughs> People go, I'm not listening to Bob anymore. And she's saying, I ain't got no doctor or a pill that can take the pain away. The pain's inside. And nobody frees you from your body. It's the soul. It's the soul that needs surgery. My soul needs surgery. That's incredible. That's incredible. Now, you may say, man, Bob, you are so hip and with it, with all the cool kids. But I'm a lot older than you, Bob, and I don't like that music so much. There's other music I like. Any examples from that? I'm like, no, I don't know that old stuff. I'm all about the bass. No. Remember 1969, for some of you that are old enough, Woodstock, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. I love this song. There's beautiful harmony and, and voices about a person heading to Woodstock, and they say, I'm going to try to get my soul free because we are stardust, we are golden, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. They sing, I don't know who I am, but we are golden, caught in the devil's bargain, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. You see, I really think like musicians sometimes have this unique ability. And, and if you find a song that you really love, it's because, a lot of times it's because you know, sometimes you just like the melody and the beat and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of times it's because you go, ah, that's how I feel. It hits you, right? And musicians have this incredible, singers have this incredible ability, songwriters maybe I should say, to do that. And I'm telling you, I just did a quick, I was just looking at some songs that I remembered and looking at some other songs that I liked. I could give you like 50 examples of this kind of introspection where people say, I got serious problems. And I don't know what the answer is. My soul needs surgery. I'm caught up in the devil's bargain and I need to get back to the garden. They see that. That's good theology. And so we know what we need. They know, they know what they need. I mean, we need Jesus. We need the glory that he gives us, that glory that we lost so long ago. And he infuses us. He brings it back into our lives, this glory. We know what we need. We just refuse to accept the answer because it means that you're not in charge. We're not the captain of our fate. We have to take our eyes off ourselves and look to God. So we have the humanity of Jesus. We have the purpose of Jesus. And now... We have the death of Jesus as he talks about that. <clears throat> now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So he's beginning to teach, but this is, this is, this is how it is. This is how it's going to work. He's, that first word now in, in, in the Greek is very emphatic. It's like Jesus goes, now. Now is the time for judgment. There will be judgment, and there will be victory. 
says the prince of this world, Satan, he will be driven out. He will lose power. Scripture tells us the power of sin, power of death, the power of hell will be broken through his death and resurrection. It's kind of an interesting comparison here. Satan is all about me. Scripture tells us, he said, I will be like the Most High. I will be like God. I don't need him. I want, I will have. Satan's all about me. Jesus is saying here, it's not about me. I do the will of my Father. Satan's all about destruction and death. Jesus is all about renewal and life. In verse 32, he said, and when I am lifted up from the earth, literally, it, literally it, 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 it says, when I am lifted out of the earth, talking about his death and then his resurrection. And he gives us the scope of his death. He says, I will draw all people to myself. My death is for everyone. The sin of the world. You know, John earlier he noted that they didn't understand all this. They understood it later. It became clear to them later. It's interesting for me as in studying this, sometimes a couple of weeks ahead, I'll start in a passage and I'll read over it and I'll start thinking about it and I'll jot down ideas. And, and oftentimes as the next week happens and I go more in depth and the next week happens and I start putting it together and thinking about what, what I should say and those types of things, some, of the, some things change. I go, wait a minute, I think this is... A, and I see things. Why? Because I feel like with the disciples, just like us, sometimes we don't understand what God is doing. But oftentimes, after a while, it, God shows it. Sometimes it's maybe a long while. Sometimes it might not be till we get to heaven. But he shows us, no, 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 there was a plan here. This worked out for good. I turn evil into good. They didn't understand. It all came to them afterwards. Can you imagine that? I mean, just if you think about that, for, I, just, I just try to sometimes put myself in their shoes. Jesus died. They thought it was all over. They ran around. Jesus, they ran away. Uh, uh, um, Peter denied him. Then he was raised from the dead. And after a little bit, they began to go, oh, my goodness, we understand it now. Why do we act like such jerks? I can't believe it. We can still grapple with that. We get into a situation, we don't understand what's going on, we tend to react, we tend to do things. Then later, as things work out, or we hear more about it, or we get more input or whatever, we go, oh, why did I do that? Why didn't I wait? That's the hardest thing for me. Wait before you open your mouth. I had a guy tell me one time, Bob, God gave you two ears and one mouth. You're using them in the, in, backwards. Use the ears more and the mouth less. And I said, thank you, Derek. No, I didn't. No. <laughs> Derek's my son. He didn't say that. I just thought I'd throw him under the bus for fun. So sometimes we don't understand. God promises that it will all come together at some point. So what kind of death are we talking about here? Was it a senseless death? Was it a tragedy? That's what they thought at first. It's just a tragedy. It's senseless. Was it a failure? They're all ready to go home. What, what happens? Jesus tracks them down. Where does he find them doing stuff? Fishing. Back to the old life. They were like, wow. We thought this was going to be something. This, it, it turned out terrible. It just went wrong. Let's go fish. Jesus is teaching us 
the most important thing in his life is the glory of God. And he wants that to be true for us also. And this is what happens to us as we, as we person accepts Christ as their Savior and then begins to live in it. It's a process. More and more we see that God is the most important thing in life. Now we're human and it can be a struggle. But we see it. It may be slow, but we see it. For a person who's just a religious person, God is just a part of their life. He's not the center of their life. So there's no struggle because it's not a threat to them. A Christian understands the scope of it. He wants to change the way I think. He wants to change the way I work. He wants to change the way I spend. He wants to change my relationships. He wants to change the intellectual part of my life. He wants to change everything. Now, I know we talk about this and you can just say, oh, help, I'm not doing real well at this. But here's the point. Do you start to see it? Do you start to see he wants all of you and you're struggling with it? Do you see the need for change in your life? That's what's so important. You, st- you begin to see it, and the struggle begins, and it's a good struggle. Years ago, I was playing on a sports team, and uh, there was another guy on the team that was a Christian. We kind of knew each other. Um, and one of the, just off to the side, one of the other players, we were talking, and he says, you know, that guy Jim, he's a good guy, isn't he? I said, yeah. Yeah, he is. I like him a lot. He goes, I do too. We have these tough games. He never gets upset, even in tough games. He seems to have a good attitude. And it was just kind of funny because he looked at me. He goes, he's a hell of a guy. And I was like, that's an interesting way to put it. You know? And I said, well, it's kind of, I'll talk to him a little. I said, well, you know, I think part of it is, is his, his faith in God is strong. I kind of figured that, the guy said. I said, yeah, it's strong. He tries to live it out daily. I mean, I believe the same as him. We both are followers of Jesus Christ. And he said, you are? Oh, wow. I was devastated. I was devastated. I was really expecting him to say, I could kind of see it in you too. But he was totally surprised. Paul says, whether we eat or drink, the most basic of things do all for the glory of God. Even the most inconsequential part of your life is something God is interested in. Eating, drinking, they're automatic. We just do them. And God says, that can be used for my glory. Do everything for the glory of God. Last point, the Son of Man. We're going to see there's the glory that's here. Verse 34, the crowd spoke up. We've heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Now, he's been teaching about this in the past, and, and Will some more, and he's used that title. And, but the problem is they don't understand how that title fits him because they're starting to get this clue. He's saying, I'm going to be lifted up. He says, I'm, I'm going to suffer this. The, you know, the Son of Man will suffer and die. And they're going, if you really mean that you're dying, if you really mean that like literally... Because, you know, you can be kind of cryptic, Jesus. But if you really mean that literally, how can you be the Son of Man? Because the Son of Man does not die. Now, they take that from a number of scriptures. Psalm 89 has some stuff on that um, where it talks, it uses that title. And at one point it says, you, He will call out to me, You are my Father, my God, the rock, my Savior. I will appoint Him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of kings on the earth. Obviously talking about the Son of Man, about Jesus. I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne, as long as the kingdoms endure. All right? 
How can you last forever if you're going to die? How's that going to happen? You don't have, you're not married. You don't have kids. How is your line going to endure forever if you die? That's nonsense. That's basically what they're saying here. All right? Then Jesus told, then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of the light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. So, okay, Jesus is telling them through this whole process that this will be fulfilled in a much more powerful way than they can even imagine. That's what we were talking about earlier. They had these ideas, and Jesus said, the problem is your ideas are way too low. Your thoughts are just too small. And it's because they had two different goals in mind. The Jews, they just wanted victory over the Romans. And Jesus is looking at the whole world. He's telling them now, he's telling them time is of the essence. He's really pushing them on this. It's kind of interesting. It's important to seize an opportunity when it arises. I've said this before. I mean, I'll say it again. If God is impressing something upon you today, don't put it off. Because he's saying there's, there's important points of time where you have to act. Don't put it off. If you're thinking about things, if you're thinking about, you think about accepting Christ as your Savior, don't put it off. Man, if you would love to talk, I will talk to you. We can make that work. You just call here, text, uh, email here. I'll be happy to meet with you if you're struggling, if you're wondering, if you have questions, but don't put them on the back burner. Because in verse 36, it's very interesting there. He says, believe in the light while you have the light. It's interesting for us. It's interesting to me because that word believe is is an imperative. In other words, it's a command, but it's present active. And what that means, present active means, is that there's a moment where you believe, but then you keep believing and keep believing and keep believing and keep believing. It's a process. And this is, this is important for us to realize. The Christian life is a process because so many times we can get upset with ourselves and get down on ourselves because you know, I've, I failed or I did something wrong or you know, I haven't quite lived up to what I thought I should be in Christ. And I'm like, ah, oh, I'm just a loser. And understanding this is a process. It doesn't, it doesn't stand or fall on one moment. Jesus is telling them, though, that soon it will get harder to believe. Then how does that work out in our life? And this is not anything new that we haven't talked about before. If you want to see the glory of God, go to the cross. What we were just talking about earlier, going to the cross and seeing what actually happened there. To glory in something is to decide that that something will be the most important thing in your life. And that is an act of the will. For a Christian to believe that Jesus died for me is the most important thing in life. Jesus died for me. That's the foundation that everything else gets built on. When we go to the cross, what do we see? We see the depth of our sin. We see the holiness of God. We see the power of his justice. We see the love of God for us fully revealed. I have a friend, Andy Culp is his name. I haven't seen Andy in 25, 30 years. Uh, quite a while ago, I was uh, 
doing some ministry at a camp in Florida. And um, it was a probably the coolest camp I've ever been to in my life. They, they had karate, they had gymnastics, they had skateboarding, they had BMX, biking, they had, they had professionals that would come in and, and teach, professionals who were Christians, and they would teach. They had um, water skiing, and, and not just barefoot skiing, you know, and, and trick skiing, and all this stuff. They had, this camp had like five of these huge V8 engine motorboats to pull you around. And so I was helping in the karate area. I, was, I took karate and taught some. And uh, I know you're going, really? <laughs> you, are, look, you look so strong. No, well, I used to do karate. Now it would kill me. Uh, anyways, um, so they said one time to me, I knew the guy who was in charge of, 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 of the boats and everything and, and teaching. And he says, you want to go ride in the boat, you know? And I said, oh, oh, yeah, that is so cool. So you get in this boat. It's got this huge V8 engine. It's like, which to me is just, you know, like the sound of heaven. And, uh, and so I sat up on the side of the boat holding the front windshield like this. And I says, okay, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. You know, just follow along when we are going to do stuff. And I was like, okay. I don't know what follow along when we're going to do stuff means. But I noticed once we started going, and he was pulling two people barefoot. And uh, every once in a while, he'd go, make a, make a hand sign. And I'd be like, am I supposed to be following you? And, um, and then he would slowly start turning, you know, and they'd get out wide and stuff like this. And so these lakes are connected by canals. There's canals all over South Florida. So we go down this canal, which is not maybe 30 feet wide. And we're going down, and one of the guys falls. And, and, and so the, the driver goes like that, and so the other guy drops right with him, so they're both together. Now, this canal, I mean, to turn around, you would have to come to almost a dead stop and go, blah, 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 turn around real slow, and then go. But they don't do that. See, they got it worked out because they have hand signals. And this guy starts going like this, and I look, and there's another guy, and he grabs his seat. And this is what they do. They're going like crazy, and then they throw the boat sideways. So it's like a brake, and the boat goes, and then he hits the gas, so the boat stands up, pivots on its tail, and they can be going 40 miles an hour, and in just a couple seconds, they've turned around, and they're going 25, 30 miles an hour in the other way. So when that boat gets pitched sideways, everybody's holding on. If you're sitting on the edge of the boat, holding the windshield, and suddenly it just goes, and you don't know the hand signals. And I just went right over. And as I went in, you know how time slows down sometimes. You know what I heard? The propeller. I heard this cavitating sound as he hit the gas to pivot it on its tail. I fell in, and he's turning into me. And just then, I felt two hands grab my ankles and pull. And it was, it was Andy Culp. He realized what had happened. He dove across from the other side of the boat, and he grabbed my ankles, and he jerked me. He didn't get me all the way in, but he got me enough in. So when the boat stood on its tail, I was kind of hanging in the water looking, but I could just see the water roiling from that that motor just accelerating like crazy to, to get it to turn. And all of a sudden, the, you know, everything stopped, you know, and they pulled me in, and I was like, you okay, you okay, you okay? And I was like, and one of the guys goes, you're dead, man. You're dead. 
you'd have been chopped up by that. Just as he hit the power, that prop would have. And, and I was like, okay, thanks. You know, that's an encouraging thought. And, and I looked at Andy, and he goes, you okay, buddy? And I said, thank you. You saved my life. And he said, I've done that before. I said, you've done that? No, he goes, no, I've other people. And, and, um, and I told him, afterwards, we stopped. We were getting something to eat, getting ready to do some other stuff. And I said, dude, if you ever need anything, I mean, you call me. I'll be there in a heartbeat. You saved my life. And I think about him every once in a while. To this day, I mean, if Andy Culp called me today and said, Bob, I need you tomorrow, I would go. I would go. Why? Because he saved my life. He saved my life. Now, I know that's a sense of a debt, but here's the thing. It's this idea, when we look at the cross, what Jesus did for you, you owe him everything. And he wants to be the most important thing in your life, not because you owe it to him, but because that's what he made you for. That's what you're made for, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to partake in the glory that is given to you because you have become one with the Father, one with the Son. And he says, Father, give them the glory you gave me, the same glory. What we glory in shows what we trust in. Right? The Old Testament says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. What is boasting? It's glorying. It's what he trusts in. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. Right? Let not the rich man boast in his riches. What does he trust? That's the key. What do you trust? And he says, don't trust those. And there's many others. But if you're going to boast, he says, let he who boasts boast in this, that you understand and know God. And he says that I am the God. You know, and justice and righteousness. Understand and know me. Boast in that. And what is that saying? Trust in that. Because what we boast in is what we trust in. There are other things claiming to bring glory into your life. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. There's lots of things that are competing for our soul, and we have to reject them. We have to look at the cross. When we look at the cross, we see Jesus saying, I love you. I died for you. I will never leave you. Let that sink in. Think of that. Look at that. And then it becomes very easy for us to give God the glory. And Scripture tells us that's where peace is in our lives. That's where peace is. So we see the humanity of Jesus. He's a human being just like us. That brings God glory. We see the purpose of Jesus. He's going to glorify God in his death. We see that death and how it glorifies him. And then we see the the title, Son of Man. He is the one that is prophesied in the Old Testament. Look to him and you will find the glory and the peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that it comes to us and it speaks to us. Even now, Lord, you're working, your spirit is working in hearts. And I just pray for all of us that, that we would uh, not put things off, but we would follow through on what you've called us to do. Help us to be found faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.